This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah. And the hot question of the day actually has to do with something that John Furlong said at the Vancouver Board of Trade this morning with regard to perhaps us putting in a bid for 2030. Have a listen. Well, for the past couple of months, as we were approaching this window, you know, of uh, everybody was going to be pulling out their jacket and, you know, reliving their dreams of 2010, um, I, I just started to think a little bit about it, big picture about why did we do 2010 and what was the sort of intended legacy. And I will say this, that 2010 was never to be the end. It was to be the beginning. It was to launch us into a new phase. All right. So lots of buzz about this. Asking the hot question today, would you like to see Vancouver Whistler bid on the 2030 Olympic Games? Your options are, yes, everything is already built, let's do this. Or no, it is too expensive. Or maybe if we can keep the dollars spent to a minimum. So we're going to talk this through over the course of the day. There are a lot of pieces of this puzzle we want to get into, but I'd like to know your opinion on this. So hit me up on Twitter, at Jody Vance, at CKNW. Get your vote in. You can call our buzz line as well. We're already getting buzz lines. You were listening to Simi this morning, likely, if you, unless you just woke up to this news and your head's exploding at the thought. But you can call in 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899, and leave your thoughts as to whether or not you'd like... Vancouver Whistler to put forward a bid for the 2030 Olympic Games. Let's go direct to Whistler, where the mayor of Whistler, Jack Crompton, is standing by on the line with us. Hello there, Mr. Mayor. Hello, Jody. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to join you. So, um, have you had uh, discussions about this prior to, or is this all coming at you really fast? No, your your uh, characterization of head blowing up, as you uh, hear about it in the morning, it was mine. It was uh, <laughs> turned on the TV, and uh, talk of a 2030 bid was the first I've heard. So um, we're all on a bit of a sugar high remembering 2010, and so I think most people <laughs> are thinking of uh, memories of 2010 and, and what it was like, and uh, and so it's an interesting conversation for sure. I believe, was it not yesterday, 10 years ago yesterday, th- that uh, the infamous, or the fabulous, not infamous, the fantastic walk with a pitcher of beer happened through Whistler and really put Whistler on, a, on the map globally? It gives you shivers remembering that night. It was a pretty special time for our community. But, you know, I like to think we were on the map before oh, for uh, sure. John Montgomery. But, yes. uh, yeah, no, it was... Uh, it was an incredible, incredible time, and, and, and moments like that are why ideas like this kind of get into people's imagination. So, Jack, from your perspective, I mean, there are obvious upsides to uh, having an event such as the Winter Games come to a mountain resort that is world-class. I mean, I've lost count of how many times Whistler Blackcomb has been named number one um, in North America, if not farther reaching. Are there downsides to this that you can think of, though? Well, I mean, it's it's about management. I think our community did a phenomenal job leading into the 2010 Games uh, planning and ensuring that the legacies that we derived were long-lasting and that they benefited the residents of Whistler, the residents of the City of the Sky, and the residents of British Columbia uh, generally. So I think what was done well in 2010 is what needs to be taken forward into any 
uh, bid for a games anywhere in the world. And I think a lot of the legacies and, and learnings that we had uh, have been passed on to other countries as they consider their bids. So we learned a lot during the process, and I think we did it well. I think you absolutely did. I spent some time up at Whistler, lucky enough to watch the women's downhill up there, and I was, I was so proud of yeah. my home mountain. My dad was a, oh. an original up there, <laughs> living when it was a Husky station and a flashing green light yeah. and a chairlift. Um, so, yes, you did it very well. And my question really honestly was coming from a position of, I don't know what didn't work. I really didn't see a, a whole lot that didn't work. I know there was a lot of anxiety about the highway and that it was going to be gridlock and the traffic was going to be mm-hmm. nuts. And mm-hmm. then we yeah. drove up there. It's like, there are no other cars on the road. Yeah. <laughs> it was crazy. Only, only buses the whole way. Yeah. That was a special day for our town when you were up uh, because Britt Janik of uh, mm-hmm. Whistlerite came sixth in that race, um, which was so special for our community to be able to celebrate one of our own uh, on home soil. So that was a good day. We're with Jack Crompton, the mayor of Whistler. I, that gives me goosebumps even when you say that out loud. I literally lost my voice in that moment. We had, we had grandstand little seats. Radio personality, no, sure it wasn't. It wasn't. But we were sitting in the stands. And, and this actually brings me to sort of my next sort of question that I, you probably can't answer, but it's certainly something that's coming to mind for you. We were sitting at the finish line in those grandstand seats and it was so warm that we were peeling off our snowsuits and wondering if we should have, you know, maybe brought the zinc out and put some significant sunscreen on our faces that, you know, that February day. Mm-hmm. I mean, 2030, what, what does it look like in terms of, you know, dependability on, on snow? We've had, you know, five of the strongest snow years on record in the last five years. And, uh, you know, Whistler's great skiing right now. Awesome. Funny, that story of a low snow Olympics it was true for the North Shore, but Whistler had some incredible skiing over those two weeks. It was gorgeous. And the mountain was empty. So your yeah. experience of the highway driving up an empty road was the same as mine skiing on our, on our mountains during the games with almost no people and unbelievable. Um, Bluebird. And, and, and like you yeah. say, it was Bluebird. Bluebird. And, Bluebird. And so some of the best skiing I've ever done was during those two weeks of the games. How was it or how is it after the fact for the, you know, we've, we've been talking, Gordon McDonald and I were just talking about it and certainly John Furlong re- referenced it. Simi's been talking about how, you know, when we invite the world, whether it was Expo 86 or the 2010 games, we invite the world, they come, they see, they're like, holy crap, it's beautiful here. And then they want to stay. Mm-hmm. And it yeah. makes affordability an issue. And certainly people who live and work at Whistler, that's that's a tough one. I mean, it's tough down here, housing affordability. It's tough there in Whistler as well. Yeah, one of the biggest legacies of the games was housing. The Athletes Village really allowed us to take a big leap forward as far as housing ourselves in our own community. Yeah, and so um, it, it 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 drives tourism. Now we've gone from two million visitors a year uh, before 2010 to th- over three a year now, uh, and so. It, like, it, it comes with challenges, but it comes with opportunities. And I think that that is what has been the biggest learning, is that you want to uh, take advantage of the opportunities and, and, and limit, it, limit the challenges as much as you can. And I think we, we did well in, in that effort. And it comes down to um, how you think about uh, some sort of dream like this moving forward, is ensuring that you, you do a good job of 
of taking advantage of challenges and limiting opportunities. But at this point, it's it's an idea rather than uh, some. It's not. It's certainly not a bid book on our table in no. Whistler at this point. It's very much a a um, a dream. A mind-blowing way to wake up for Jack Crompton, for sure. So thank you for doing this. Yeah, well said. We really do appreciate it, Jack. Thank you. It's a pleasure to chat. Have a great day. You too. That's the mayor of Whistler. We had time to continue our conversation. The hot question of the day. Would you like to see Vancouver Whistler bid on the 2030 Olympic Games? It's something that John Furlong floated at the Vancouver Board of Trade uh, this morning. He just put it out there. Why not? Furlong, you may remember, served as president and chief executive officer of the Vancouver Organizing Committee, otherwise known as VANOC. We were just speaking with uh, Jack Crompton, the mayor of Whistler getting his take on this. So why not go to the other piece of this puzzle? The mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, joining us on the line. I think I'm talking to you twice in one week. I, I think we officially need a bat phone for me directly to your office. <laughs> yeah, that's any time. We're always happy to talk. I really appreciate that. So how did you find out about this? Uh, well, I walked in my office and there were a thousand calls from report, <laughs> reporters right. asking me what I thought about uh, the 2030 Olympic, uh, potential 2030 Olympic bid. And so, yep, that's how I found out about it. And, uh, and here you are. in the news like everybody else. Yeah. So I'm going to be one of those thousands of messages from a report. What do you think? What do you think? Well, I think it's a really fun idea. Uh, however, uh, what I think matters less than what the Prime Minister and Premier think. Uh, because in the end, it's the senior governments that put together the teams, put together the bids, and more, most importantly, provide the funding, really, for, for these kind of events. So uh, if they decided to go for it, if uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and, and uh, Premier Horgan decided this is something they wanted to do, I would certainly join their team and, and help uh, as much as I could. Okay, so some of the concerns that come up are, are pretty obvious ones. Uh, housing affordability is already a, a big issue here. The Obviously, Olympic Village is now sold to citizens, where might an athlete's village be built? So infrastructure pieces, while things tend to get built rather quickly when the IOC needs to set things up, uh, we can just look around and see all the legacy pieces from the 2010 games. Um, have, have you given some thought to sort of some of the pieces of the puzzle that you'd want to bring to the table if and when the premier or the prime minister say, what do you think, Mayor Stewart? Well, a, a couple of things. First of all, uh, it would have to be of net benefit to the city. I mm-hmm. mean, the city's changed a lot since the last time we bid and then hosted the Olympics. So, uh, you know, that the housing pressures have been, been, become acute. Uh, you know, uh, homeless numbers are high at 2,200 people. We have overdose crisis here. So really, any kind of major event that senior governments would want for the city would have to mesh with uh, with our priorities. Uh, I think that can be done. It just, it just matters how much money money, uh, you know, the, the senior governments are willing to, to throw at, at the issue. However, I do think we'd probably require another referendum, just like we had uh, last time, because it, this should be a citizen's decision. Uh, you know, residents have to really have a say in this. And so if this moves any further, then we'd have to have a plan for that as well. I was kind of expecting people to say, oh, hell no, it's too expensive. And so we've put out the question and it's 43% saying, yeah, it was great. Everything's built. Or no, 35% saying it's too expensive. Huh. And then 20% are on the fence on this. And with the emails that are coming in and certainly we'll open up the phone lines and, and not in this segment, but get get sort of the temperature of, of those who maybe aren't on social media on this. But my email inbox is is fairly positive about it, even though 
it's, you know, 2030 is, is down the road significantly, people sort of bringing to the table that maybe that would sort of spark or force the hand of the federal government helping with the opioid crisis and the homelessness issue and the affordability crisis here and sort of really injecting what this city needs help with, as you've stated before. Yeah, and I think, though, it would be dangerous to tie any help that they should be giving anyway uh, to uh, making the, the Olympics a condition of that help. Uh, you know, and why I think maybe you're you're getting uh, popular, uh, you know, feedback from the public on this is, A, you know, it's it's kind of a, a tough time right now. we got coronavirus and we've got, you know, we've got the, the ongoing kind of disputes over pipelines and those types of things. And, and, you know, the race for the presidency in the U.S., like there's a lot of... Uh, news coming at people that is that is you know not that great to digest. However, you know I think people really liked the Olympics when it was here. It showed what Vancouver, you know, what the Vancouver of the future might look like with a lot more population and the streets were filled and people are having a good time. So, so it, you know it's a it's a fun thing to think about rather than often the other stuff that isn't as fun. So I can right. see why it's uh, you know why it's uh, you know why people are thinking that this might be a thing they might want to do. A little bit of a feel-good vibe. Just to be clear yeah. on not tying things such as dealing with crises of, no. of opioid. I, would, I wasn't suggesting that it be tied to that, but I was suggesting that perhaps there would be a next level of urgency perhaps. attached to it. So just to be clear on that, because I'm, okay. I'm okay, already watching thanks. I'm watching my emails all, you know, bing, 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 come in here. I want that SkyTrain to UBC regardless of yeah. Olympics, bitch, <laughs> yes. right? So, Fair enough. Yeah. Fair, well, we need to move people, certainly, and because I have you on the line, I, we didn't discuss this prior to, but thoughts on, um, you know, what we saw yesterday at Broadway and Commercial with regard to um, the, the protests continuing and TransLink securing that injunction. Uh, is there anything that the city can do as far as injunctions with with these protests? Well, right now, I mean, the injunctions within the city limits have been secured by either the port or CP or or TransLink. So those are external bodies that have, uh, I would say, you know, a lot of cases, their their operations have national importance. Uh, You know, we have uh, we have had uh, folks in intersections, uh, you know, right here on uh, Canby and Broadway. But but that's something we're kind of used to in the city. Uh, You know, it is something that's uh, and the the VPD have a have a long practice of how to deal with, uh, you know, lots of people in one one spot stopping Mm -hmm. traffic. And 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 actually, in some ways, there's almost an agreement in the city that you know, folks will make their point and then they'll move on. And that's kind of what's happened in city, uh, you know, city regulated space. However, the port situation, uh, that injunction was a lot different. And in fact, the injunction by the port was quite aggressive and, you know, ordered basically a a clearing of a path. Um, And in that case, the VPD really had no, uh, no uh, choice, but to To enforce. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and and I think nobody wants to see almost 50 people arrested. I, I certainly don't. But but in that sense, that was out of our hands, and in fact, in some ways, out of the VPD's hands. Uh, but they handled it in such a professional and respectful manner, and that's really the, you know, the high bar that we, we set here in the city. Now, you were arrested at the top of Burnaby Mountain. If you're arrested one time, what happens? You pay a fine. Yeah, you know, I didn't know when I was going into it what what actually would happen. So you uh, you do have to go to court and appear in front of a judge, and then I did pay a fine of I think five hundred dollars. Uh, and that you know that whole thing, which I did for my constituents, you know, yep. who were also getting arrested and. 
um, you know, which I wouldn't do now as mayor, but uh, but I felt important to do as an MP at the time. Uh, it was really scary. I mean, it was it was not. Uh, you know, I was very nervous. I know all the folks there were nervous. I know the police were also. Uh, and in fact, one point, uh, you know, Elizabeth May started singing "Oh Canada," and the police actually were had a few tears in their eyes, and and it was nothing that you know, that you would ordinarily do. And so these are, these are stressful on both sides of mm-hmm. things, but we have to respect the, the rights of people to do this. And we almost have, like I said, a kind of a tacit agreement in the city. Uh, there are some groups that, that, that will kind of not respect that, but it's usually make your point and move on. And that seems to be what's happening now. Really appreciate your time, uh, Mr. Okay. Mayor, and, and that I was able to switch gears there with you on the fly because no I didn't give you the heads up on that. So okay. I appreciate it. No Thank you. Yeah. Okay. That's talk to you, later. you bet. Kennedy got bat phone. I will talk to you later. Kennedy Stewart, mayor of Vancouver here on the Simi Sarah show. And this next discussion is one that I'm very passionate about, but I'm going to kind of be on the sidelines a bit for being a mother of a 12 year old. There are certain words that are not allowed in my house. Obvious ones. N word, C word, F word, R word. Today we're talking about the R word that sometimes pops itself into uh, the vernacular sort of off the cuff. But what if you got it? on a government letter. A BC mom actually raised a complaint about the R word being used not once, but twice from the children's ministry email uh, about her son. Flagging it was very important. And, And just before we get to the opening of the conversation, the government has changed things because of our next guest, Sue Robbins. They've actually sincerely apologized for any distress that the letter caused. This is an official statement. The ministry values inclusivity and understand the profound effect labeling can have on children, youth, and families. So the language in question was part of an older correspondence template, which has now been updated. That's the long and the short of that. So welcome to the show, Sue Robbins. Thanks for being here. Thanks for your interest. Oh, we need to put Sue's mic's on, mic on. There we go. I think we're there. Hmm. Now we have Sue's mic. There you go. Sorry, <laughs> technical <am>. difficulty. <laughs> Sue Robbins is with us, uh, mom of Aaron, and also in studio is Ben Dooley, our CKNW producer, who is brilliant. Um, ben and I work a lot together, so you may have heard me mention him before. Ben, people might not know you were born with spina bifida. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, born with spina bifida, and uh, you know, doctors didn't think I would I would be living. Uh, after birth, but here I am. And here you are booking a show like we have today that is so busy. But we're very glad to have Sue Robbins in studio. Your son is how old? So I have three kids, but my youngest son, Aaron, is 16 and he has Down syndrome. So this note that you got from the ministry was referencing to his continuing to be able to access supports? It's what the government calls transitioning. So as your child gets older and closer to adulthood, uh, he'll be moving from children's supports into the adult world. So the email that I received in my inbox was, it was a form letter and it was a list of all the things us families have to do in order to get our kids ready to basically grow up. (laughs) And, um, you know, I, I had dropped Aaron off at Taekwondo and I was sitting in the car and I, I thought, oh, I'll just check my email. So I checked my email and I saw there was something from the ministry and I opened it up and I started reading it. And and in the middle of it, it said the R word. And I can't even say the word. Hopefully everyone knows what that means. I think everybody knows yeah, what that means I'm, and like, should know not to use yes, it. Yes, yeah. Um, and, and it wasn't just once, it was twice. And it was in regards to how kids with 
intellectual disabilities, they have IQ testing and kind of the categories they put them in. And it's an old-fashioned formal term for having uh, intellectual disability, but it's totally not even used anymore. Right. They said it was a clinical term. Yes. Uh, the language in question reflected cr- uh, clinical terminology that had previously been used in the field. Right. Yeah. So now it's 2020 and we don't use the R word anymore, no, no. like ever. And you know, I, I have to say, for me, it, it's a trigger. It, it's a trigger because even just two weeks ago, Aaron was at an open gym class one Friday evening with his dad, and this little kid came up to him who was about six and called him the R word, like like because Aaron's got a visible disability, and that's an often a word used for people with Down syndrome. And I, I asked my husband, "What did Aaron do?" Like I was worried. <laughs> his response to that, and he said he just looked at him and walked away. So, how does that young person learn that word in that context in twenty twenty? Like, I that's the part where I I think is it, it ignorance? Te- like teach your children well. I think it comes from from home. I think that people use it, not realize the power of that word, and then other times people use it because of the power of that word, and it's right. to put people down. And to devalue people, and it's an insult. And you know, if you, you could pick another word, right? If you want to what call somebody would, insulting, I'd so, ask yeah. both of you this: What is the another word that's not insulting? Not not like yes, there are many words for insults, but people carefully sort of dance around. And Ben, maybe you can chime in because you know, Sue, you and I as tabs temporarily able-bodied. That's my the terminology that I have learned from my friends in the disabled community. What? What's the right way to speak to a, a physical appearance of, of, of challenge? Well, I, I think it varies from person to person. You know, somebody might say that they're okay with uh, being called a person with a disability. That's uh, a generally accepted term. Somebody might not like, you know, being called disabled. Right. So somebody might say that I use a wheelchair and that is... That is who I am. I'm just somebody who uses a wheelchair to get around. That doesn't make me any different. Yeah. That's just the way that I operate. And so it it very much uh, varies from, from person to person. And it's all about, I think, having that conversation about how would you like to discuss, you know, what, what you deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis. Are you okay if I refer to you in this manner. Yeah, or what's, what's your preferred terminology? Yeah. It's, we're doing that with pronouns now, so why not? Yeah, totally. Right? It's just about having that conversation, and, I, and that's why I'm glad, you know, Sue came in uh, to, today to, to have that conversation with us, because I, I can say everything that I want, but we need people who are not d- disabled to also chime in on the conversation right. to, to say that it doesn't just matter... To people with disabilities, it matters to their parents, yeah. to their friends, to to people in their community. Yeah, we because need to teach our children well the 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 need for inclusivity and not derogatory terms. I think that's where the R word comes into play. And Sue, bringing it to the attention of the government the, on that form, you've already moved the meter. But the kindness piece, raising three children, one of which happens to have Down syndrome, and and is is growing into adulthood, transitioning to adulthood for him must be scary for you as a mom, to some degree. I'm scared of my 12-year-old transitioning into adulthood, so aren't we all as moms worried? Well, well, I think 
there's always loss involved with that as right. your children grow up and move out. And my my other children are uh, 23 and 26, so oh, I've had a while to yes too. to get used to the idea of that. So I think kids start breaking their mother's hearts the minute they're born because they start separating. So that that piece of it is hard. But what is distressing to me is that for when my other kids, Ella and Isaac, grew up and graduated from high school, we celebrated that. That was fun. Like you went out and got the dresses and everyone got dressed up and you had a big party and it was a time for celebration. And for Aaron, uh, the idea of him growing up, if you listen to what the government says, it's like looking down the barrel of a, of a gun. Like there's all these terrible things that it's it's just so stressful. We have to do all this stuff to get him ready to transition over to the adult world. And and there's there's no joy in it. Like mm. they've taken the joy and the celebration out of it. And it, he's like, a, he's a person on a social worker's file. That's what ends up happening. And what I fear is, you know, I, I talk a lot in, about, in healthcare about kindness and compassion. You've actually written a book on it. I have, yeah. It's called Bird's Eye View and it was just released in October. And I've been doing lots of speaking tours at hospitals about it. But it really transfers to the social services and education like and, and healthcare, like all of it. The fact is that people need to be seen as people first. Like right. that is the most important. So Aaron, you know, he's not Down syndrome. Like he's a person who has Down syndrome. Right. And 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 really considering him as a human being and getting to know him as a human being. And anybody who understood our community uh, who worked for the ministry would not have sent that letter out. Like they would have known that the R word, I don't care if it's used in a clinical form Doesn't or not. Matter. Doesn't matter. They would not have sent it out. So I think there's a lack of understanding with our institutions and the system about what it's like to have a disability, to be disabled, and to love somebody who's disabled. So I really think it comes back to their own personal values. And I wish that you know would pe- people would do that kind of inner work to look at it because that was not a kind letter. And I didn't even read the rest of it. Like right. it wasn't even an effective form of communication. And Because of that one word used twice. Yeah, I turned off. I immediately turned off. And they're trying to get some point across, some information that's important to me, but they did not do it in a in a certainly an audience friendly manner. And my son can read. And so I don't know, I should check his Gmail. I don't know how they got our addresses. Like maybe he got a copy of that. And in fact, I I had to talk to him about this because they used the picture. You know, I wanted to get his mm-hmm. consent for using mm-hmm. his picture and using his first name. And he was okay with it. He's actually an actor. So he's, he's okay with that. He, he doesn't mind us talking about him, he said. But it, the one question he had for me is, he said, Mom, he said, why is the government calling me the R word? And I, I, I don't know how to answer that. He knows it's a terrible word. Yeah. Maybe this is a good lesson for the government to go through all of their files and form letters and just make sure that it is removed from all communications at every level because it is a derogatory term, full stop. I want to turn to you again, Ben, and ask you about making the transition to adulthood. Was there, there, because I met your dad when we were playing sledge hockey a couple weeks ago with Haley Wickenheiser, no big deal. Um, Yeah, your dad was like, that's my guy. That's my guy. He he seemed like a person who always thought you could shoot for the stars and, and, and make it. Were there people who thought, yeah, well, you know, you're out of school, you're done? Oh, 100%. You know, the, it, I, I have a letter from my doctor who uh, he wrote this letter um, so that while I was transitioning out of school, 
I could stay on my dad's health insurance. This letter says that I will never be capable of working. (laughs) Wow. Well, that doctor was wrong, because you're a rock star producer here at CKNW, and I'm proud to call you my teammate, and I'm glad you're here. Shine in some light on this, and I'm glad that you brought Sue uh, and her story to our attention so we could book this guest today, because I think we've, we've helped someone. Someone's listening right now going, I felt like the R word because I've been called the R word so many times. Guess what? You're not the R word. I, get, I guess one thing I want to make sure I say is, you know, people think having a child with a disability is a burden, and we hear that a lot about suffering and burden, but he's not the burden. No. <laughs> These are the types of things that cause the burden and suffering, and it's systems and society, and people go, oh, it's the system, but people built that system. People. So if people built that system, people can also demolish the system. So really looking at this as a lesson for MCFD and thinking about, you know, how they personally feel about disabled people that they're supposed to serve. And is this a person-centered process that they're in? And I would say that it's not, and not it from my perspective. It should be. be. Yes. Sue Robbins, thank you very much. Give Aaron a high five. He's making change here by uh, giving his consent. And I want to I want to know, you can tell me off air what, what he's acting in, because that's that sounds cool. <laughs> I'd like to follow along. And Ben Dooley, as always. Thank you. Excellent. Now get back to work. We're busy. Just got to share this quick clip. This is Senator Elizabeth Warren last night in Nevada at the Democratic debate. It's just a, just a little snippet. A billionaire who calls women fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Sorry, see, now you see why I needed to play that five seconds. Did not see that coming from Elizabeth Warren, which is like America's mom. Did you watch the Nevada Democratic debate last night? Things got real, real fast. It was a type of debate that you simply could not look away from. And we want to get the official debrief now. So let's go to Washington and connect with Reggie Cicchini, Global National Washington producer and reporter. Reggie, thanks for this. Good morning. Good morning. Holy cow, what a debate. I mean, it was reminiscent of what we saw in 2016 when it was a bunch of GOPers standing on stage and Donald Trump was the person to beat. But this was this was uh, something we haven't seen in this Democratic group since the uh, debate season opened up. And with a new person on the stage, all eyes were targeted on him. Interestingly enough, they weren't uh, focused on the front runner on the stage, who was actually uh, Bernie Sanders. So the morning after winners, losers, most notable moments. What do you what's your perspective? Well, I mean, most notable moments are obviously going to go to Elizabeth Warren. She came out swinging right off the bat within the first 10 minutes. She had pinned uh, Michael Bloomberg against a wall for both policy and for uh, kind of business decisions that he's made. And for somebody who has watched this entire thing kind of unfold for the last year while he tried to figure out whether he was going to jump in the waters or not, he seemed very unprepared for any of the information that was going to be lobbed at him and questions that would be lobbed at him. He was unprepared to be able to respond to any of them on time uh, and in a kind of cohesive manner. And because of that, uh, you know, he ended up on the bottom of the list for, uh, you know, the winners and losers of this campaign of this uh, debate last night. Elizabeth Warren, though, really coming out on top, kind of bypassing the Elizabeth Warren we've seen over the last couple of months, going away from her script and just coming out with full fire. It was interesting. It was like Bloomberg left the chat midway. It was like, where is he? Did he leave? Yeah, I mean, he sat, you could see from the very beginning as, as you know, first questions were lobbed at him. He was yeah. gripping the side of his podium, uh, you know, very clearly uncomfortable yeah. with where this was going to go. Yeah, it was quite something. And then to see um, Amy, Cl- Amy Klobuchar kind of allowed herself to get a bit rattled or was that just sort of my take on it? 
no, she was very clearly getting her buttons pressed by yeah. Pete Buttigieg. The two of them were kind of acting on each other's emotions for the entire night, and it's simply because they're both going after the same voter pool. Mm. So if Pete Buttigieg can rattle up Amy Klobuchar, she doesn't have a good performance, uh, and you know, all of a sudden, those people may be more inclined to go to him. There are f- a lot of people running down the middle of this race right now, and they're all trying to siphon each other's support off. Biden continued to start everything with look and, well, and I, you know, I mean, it's, it's look and it's also look at what I did with, with Barack, Barack Obama. Obama. Yeah, everything he said, he was bringing it back to the Obama administration, but it allowed for him to have a better debate performance than he's seen over the last couple of months. He got his answers out quickly, concisely. They were to the point. He didn't throw as many barbs and jabs as everyone else on the block. So for that, he was kind of given a middle of the road debate performance. Wasn't so bad. Could have been worse. Sanders still the winner. Still the front line, uh, front runner on this. He, yeah. he walked away last night, not really kind of getting involved in everybody's jabs, except when it came to Michael Bloomberg. But this is why we say nobody really paid attention to the fact Sanders is leading with double digits right now over everyone. And because of that, they should have had their eyes focused on the on prize, him. which is yeah. where he's standing. And they didn't do that. So it allowed him to kind of gain more momentum as we head into Saturday's vote in Nevada. Oh, man, I could talk to you all day about this. We definitely need to go for beers when next I'm in Washington and debrief on all of this. Thank you, Reggie. Temperatures are on the way to 15 degrees. Come on down. (laughs) I'm on my way. I'm on the next play. Reggie Cicchini, always a pleasure. Our Global News Washington correspondent. Thanks for this. Now, on Tuesday, when the BCNDP tabled their 2020 budget, they did mention education, which made me stop and stare at the screen as a mother of a 12-year-old in public school, uh, daughter of a high school teacher. It made many of us pause and listen because it impacts all of us when it comes to education and the exhaustion that we all sort of feel surrounding negotiations between the government and the teachers. So Finance Minister Carol James actually said the government would help solve the teachers shortage in BC. Dollars towards that. Uh, That has to be welcomed, right? But what of the current climate between our provincial government and our teachers? We're happy to welcome somebody who probably can shed some light on that. BC Teachers Federation President Terry Mooring in studio. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Jody. What was budget day like for you? It was really interesting. And and we were actually reflecting on in the last few uh, budgets um, before the NDP was elected, you know, we would be crafting really bad news. Responses. Releases after, you know, we uh, got the information and, you know, more cuts to education. So it's been refreshing not to have that as a narrative, that's for sure. Well, what is it, 300 million over the next three years into the system? It is. And so it's about an increase of 1.8% to education. And what that mostly will go to is covering increased student enrollment. And so that's good. Uh, Because before I became so involved in uh, the BCTF, I just made an assumption that if you have more students in the system, you actually fund them. But that's not to be taken for granted because that didn't happen in the past. Are you kidding? So we are funding more students in the system and that's really good. We're also doing it. They're also doing a couple other things which we welcome. One is uh, there's going to be dollars towards um, teaching Indigenous perspectives and knowledges in our system and and we've been really wanting uh, more resources around that. So that's great. And the other is there's also money towards um, children 
children in care, improving uh, their reality in schools. And districts have a lot of flexibility with that money in terms of additional counseling or food programs or what have you that might might be needed. And so that's the good news. Um, The part that we were disappointed about, though, was that there isn't any dedicated dollars to solving the teacher shortage. And the teacher shortage, when we say that, um, you know, we felt it in the lower mainland to some degree, but we have no idea in southern British Columbia, actually, all the way into the interior. is, is It's there, but it's not even close to what we're seeing in the northern part of, of our province, right? It's really true. And so a typical example about how Metro is impacted is there's a behavior intervention teacher in Vancouver that was put into a classroom. Uh, so removed from their job. Um, that job then uh, is really difficult to fill, even in Metro Vancouver, which gives you an idea of the shortage. And so students that have behaviors that either um, either they act out in terms of the behaviors or they act internally on themselves, um, those students aren't supported. And in some cases, it means that those students can't remain in school. So it's bad enough that specialist teachers are being pulled into classrooms in Metro, but what's happening in the North Coast, North Central, Peace regions of our province, and there are other pockets that are impacted as well. We actually have uncertified, untrained folks who are well-meaning. In some cases, they're described as enthusiastic or upstanding members of the community that are in classrooms that are that have no, in some cases, no post-secondary training whatsoever. In some cases, there's a little bit of post-secondary, but it's not in a related field. So we have nail technicians, we have um, realtors, you know, we have uh, former students. Uh, all well-meaning, but those are the folks in actual contracts in some places in the in northern uh, BC. That's how deep the crisis runs in terms of trying to find a qualified teacher to take these positions. It's it's true, and so we have numbers of these folks in actual contracts, but we have hundreds more that fill in for teachers day to day, and they're either not trained teachers or they're retired yeah. teachers. And we really appreciate the retired teachers. In some cases, there are stories around retired teachers sort of being really coaxed out of retirement to come back into the system because it's so dire in many places, and we really appreciate that. But that's also not a dependable workforce. We need no. to resolve this crisis. Um, and it's not good for the kids. It. It's it's not a reliable work, workforce, and it's not good for the kids. My son, as I've told you the story um, off air before, after the the strike, um, he felt the echo effect of it and had five different teachers over the course of one year because basically it was supply teacher to supply teacher to supply teacher. Um, And then we had one teacher who came from Alberta who was a lovely man but was completely overwhelmed because the the system here is completely different than the system there. There the curriculum is handed to you and here you have to actually create your own, which I didn't know until he literally had no curriculum and my son came home and was like, I really like this guy. He just talks to us all day. I'm like, really? So you didn't really do any math, you know? So th- those types, when, and when your 10-year-old, or I guess he was nine at the time, comes home and says that, I'm like, we're missing out on opportunity here. And I've got a bright boy who is engaged and he's learning at the right level. He's able to do that. If he was struggling at all, I don't know what I'd do. Yeah, and this is a real regional disparity. Um, yeah. And as I say, the crisis impacts the entire province, but it's really significant in, in certain regions of the province. And those students, too, deserve certified teachers in their classrooms. And in many cases, it's not happening. And that's not okay. In BC, 
where, you know, we were just hearing from the finance minister how strong the economy is, mm-hmm. how well we're doing. And, and that's true. We have uh, surpluses now. Um, but we need to do something about the teacher shortage. We do indeed. We're with Terry Mooring, who is the BCTF president uh, in studio with us here. And we have to bring it up. I mean, I see it on my Twitter all the time. We talk about it regularly. You and I have done many uh, sit downs over the course of these negotiations. And we come back to the two, two and two mandate um, and how that fits. And, and, and people talk about the me too clause that is in place. Because if, if teachers get paid more than two, two and two, then nurses can say, well, me too. So we're opening up our contract again. And it can have an impact and, and effects on, on government workers more than just uh, the teacher's scenario. So what can actually work within 2-2-2 two, two, and two for your purposes in negotiation? Yeah, so uh, teachers are the second lowest paid um, teacher, like we're the second lowest paid uh, nationally. And so uh, teachers in BC make less only, uh, we're only second to Quebec. So Quebec makes less than teachers in BC, um, than it's teachers in BC. So it's it's really significant having a real big impact on teachers coming from their jurisdictions to BC. And so 2-2-2, two, two and two, we understand that to be the mandate. Um, we get it. Um, but there are other things that other unions were able to do to increase their salaries, and that's what we're looking for as well. So restructuring the salary grid, it takes 10 years on average to be uh, to get your full wage uh, as a teacher in BC. Right. And uh, so we're looking to do something there. And Do you have the number that doesn't exceed the mandate of 2-2-2 two, two and two then? Like, isn't that just a no-brainer that everybody could agree that if it falls between 2-2-2 two, two and two, we could make that happen to solve the crisis? Like, this, there's got to be some bigger stumbling block here that we're not seeing. Well, I think that, uh, you know, it, it's just a matter of us getting to the table and having those real frank conversations. And, and uh, it hasn't happened as, as much or up until now, really, because we've really been stymied at the table because of the concessions that the employer tabled. And so that's really taken up all the oxygen lately. Uh, and so we're hoping that they're removed from the table so we can get down to really substantive conversations about what's really needed in education in BC. So we have lots of dates now, and so I'm really happy to report that. We have Good. dates at the end of February. We have dates uh, for three weeks in March. So Great. we are really hopeful that we'll really make progress uh, when we head to the, back to the table. Good, Terry, because parents are stressing out in BC because we're watching what's happening in Ontario. Yes, and it's really awful what's happening in Ontario. It's not all that dissimilar from when our language was uh, stripped by the collective, our collective agreement was stripped by the Liberal government. Um, but it's really, um, you know, I have lots of friends who are teachers in Ontario. It's really horrible to see what is happening there and how hard teachers are having to fight for student learning conditions, for uh, wage increases as well. Um, and so, and the kids are never getting this time of their lives back. It's it's really terrible when a government doesn't respect their teachers enough to really sit down and, and uh, work with them in order to resolve contract disputes. It's not necessary that it always results in strikes and, and job actions. That's not the scenario that should be playing out. Mm-hmm. We should be sitting down like reasonable folks and, and hammering out solutions to these problems. Would 2-2-2 two, two and two put BC teachers higher up? On that, like, as you said, one up from Quebec right now, wouldn't it put you like fourth or or better? It just really depends on what happens in places like Ontario and Saskatchewan, who are currently negotiating right, right now. There is lots of I'm other just jurisdictions to start us there somewhere as well. <laughs> so I suppose if they get uh, 
less than than mm. uh, two, then we might move up a little bit, but it's still not going to resolve the shortage in BC, especially right. when you account for the cost of living in BC. So we have to do a lot better if we want to attract teachers here. And right now we're not producing enough teachers in BC to fill the need. And so clearly we need teachers from other jurisdictions. And this PR for teachers, like people watching this, the struggle, because the struggle has been real and for quite a long time now, I don't know if I'd look to my son who would be like, I think I want to be a teacher. I'd say, mm, buddy. Yeah, it's it's tough, right? Yeah. Um, it's, a and, tough, uh, it's a tough job. People who think you got it easy got, are wrong. I grew up in a household with a teacher and they're like, oh, another Friday long weekend. Of course it's a prodi day. They're marking all day. All weekend. They are. And, and I remember the days when uh, I would tell my kids, like, mom's going to be busy at the computer for the next few weekends because mm-hmm. I'm doing report cards. I mean, it, yeah. it really is. It, you have to really love it. And, and those in, in classrooms do really love it. Um, but in order to attract uh, more folks into the profession, we do need to make sure that teachers are not only paid well, but are well respected. And and that is starting to turn around. I really feel that with the new government. I do believe they respect teachers. I do believe that they believe in public education. We just now need to work with this current government around the teacher shortage, around our collective agreement issues, get it solved. Um, and we're quite willing to work together on that. Is, is it, this is my naivete. I don't know the issues around this, but with all the dollars that are coming from a budget that are going to private schools, is there a way to sort of peel off some of that money and put it into the public arena and let private schools that seem to be operating at a, I don't know, a pretty swanky capacity? Yeah, it's really been a point of contention and uh, the amount of money going to private schools, the amount of public money going to private schools. Uh, what we've suggested to government, because you know there is a reluctance uh, on the part of government to act on this issue, is why don't we just start with the elite private schools that can afford to pay, where, where parents can afford to pay full tuition. Um, $36 million in this budget going to private education, we could really use that in the public system right now. That would really be helpful. And so, you know, while I see um, that there are some private schools that are not elite, let's start with the ones that are. Right. And, uh, start and somewhere. Ex- exactly. That that would be helpful. Um, it's not necessary to publicly fund them. And, uh, and you know, we've been calling on that for to happen for a long time. And just because it's always been that way doesn't mean it has to continue to be that way. And it actually hasn't been that way for all that. Long it was Liberal government uh, uh, during their last uh, you know couple terms that actually started funding uh, private schools publicly, um, and they did that because they fundamentally didn't believe in, in public education, and mm. and eventually I think the the idea was that they wanted to move to a completely private system. But that, you know, we have a new government that should have a new perspective on this and start with the elite private schools. That's our suggestion. Terry Mooring, always a pleasure to talk with you. And thank you for being so open uh, to coming in studio and, and just really having everything on the table. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Jody, anytime. That is Terry Mooring, the BCTF president. I got so chatty with Terry Mooring that I've got like three minutes to chat with you, Richard Zussman. Uh-huh. Usually I save all the time for you, but uh, I, I need to find out what happened with the rest of that John Horgan uh, media availability lots was said there yeah so two different things the big topics were obviously the olympics and the witsuitan and so on the olympics as you've heard in the news premier horgan was talking about how you know yes we'd look at a proposal from uh whoever if it's john furlong or someone out 
else about the Olympics, but you know, wouldn't put any money on a hypothetical proposal around what the province would do in terms of putting money on the table for a Vancouver 2030 Winter Olympic bid. And on the Wet'suwet'en, I think the thing that stood out the most, Jody, uh, was Horgan's reaction to the protesters that came to his house earlier this week. Yes. And he spoke about his wife's reaction and described it as a darkness in her heart. And that's how she described it to the premier when he returned home, was the anger that she felt about the personal invasion. Premier Horgan said, I've stood for election. I represent my political party. I back the decisions I make, but my wife has never stood for elected office. My neighbors haven't stood for elected office. So come after me. And that he says it should never happen again to see sort this sort of protest um, on his own private property. You know, and he also spoke about the meeting yesterday when he spoke with his fellow premiers. It seems like there are some um, differings of opinions on how to approach the blockades. And there seems to be a divide, you know, from west to east that uh, it really comes down to Ontario and previous rulings around the OPP, the Ontario police, um, enforcing uh, blockades and injunctions and the their refusal to move in and remove blockaders. And that was something that was contentious on the call. Uh, and I think other premiers were pushing for Premier Doug Ford to be more forceful in standing up for the rule of law. On the Coastal Gas Lake Pipeline, we've heard this before, but also important to to say it again, that Premier Horgan says it's not an option for him to cancel this project. He, he wants to see this project move forward. And on meeting with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, Premier Horgan said he'd be willing to do it if there is the uh, possibility of a positive outcome. But for now, the best action is to continue to offer Minister Scott Fraser and Federal Minister Carolyn Bennett up whenever the Wet'suwet'en uh, hereditary chiefs are available for them to go and sit with them. Whenever they're ready to talk, it's going to be the dialogue that matters. Thank you for this, Richard Zussman. Yeah, thanks, Jody. That's Richard Zussman, the Global BC Online journalist based in the legislature. You can read him online. You'll see him on uh, Global BC as well as BC One. Man, I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw this thread pop up by somebody who I've interviewed here before and I've actually interacted quite often with on Twitter. He's a city planner and urbanist at Totteran Urban Works. But today, Brent actually joins us for a different reason. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Jody. So being a parent, you know, as I mentioned earlier with Terry Mooring, I, I have a 12-year-old. I certainly made plans a decade ago as to where I'd like to live and raise him and, and even what school he might attend, a public school. Mm-hmm. You did similar, but you're finding the dominoes not quite falling where you had hoped. Well, my wife is also a city planner, so the two of us, not surprisingly, are long-term thinkers. And when we uh, knew we were going to start a family, we decided to settle literally right next door to where the new Crosstown Elementary School downtown was going to be built. And we crossed our fingers that it would actually would be built, and it was, and we started our family. And this year, our first little boy, we've got to, um, was old enough to apply for kindergarten and we were informed that there was going to be a lottery that there were at least um, uh, twice as many kids wanting a space uh, in the catchment area for kindergarten as there were actual spaces and so literally even this concept of a word lottery sort of um, disturbed us yeah Um, and it's um it it, we suddenly realized that this 10-year strategy we've had for our lives where we would raise our family and such could all get knocked out 
just by the luck of the draw uh, about whether or not we could actually let our little boy go to the school that he can literally see from his bedroom window uh, here in downtown Vancouver. That must be unbelievably frustrating because there's only one real piece of comfort that you can find as a parent with a young one to know that your catchment is good because the catchment is you show up at school and they have to take you. Well, in the suburbs, that's the way it works. They build portables, which aren't ideal, no, but, uh, no. but you can go to school in your community, generally speaking. In, in urban settings, and, and I was chief planner of Vancouver for six years, we tried incredibly hard to create a downtown that was not just a great place to live, but specifically a great place for families to live. And we are a little bit uh, of a victim of our own success because a lot more people have raised families here, have stayed downtown than I think anybody might have thought uh, was was possible. But uh, the one piece of the planning puzzle, the piece that's always been more reactive than actual planning, is the construction of the schools themselves based on the provincial funding model. So we end up with a situation where you know, I, as a planner, we used to joke that the school boards are notorious for not building schools until they see the whites of the kids' eyes. <laughs> the old state. Yes. But the yeah. truth is, it, here, it's worse than that. Uh, the, the kids can actually be there for quite a while, and the school, school won't be greenlit. And I, I was hearing, even while I was at City Hall, about parents giving up on the downtown because they were just tired of com- having to commute every day out of the downtown. They had done the right thing living in an urban setting, a lower carbon footprint setting. They didn't own a car, but they had to commute out uh, of the downtown to take their kids to school, and they couldn't wait for crossroads, uh, so that many of them gave up, as a matter of fact. Devastating thing for a city planner to hear. Yeah, and, and now as a parent, I'm, I'm facing it myself. I've always, been, this has always been a really important planning issue for me as a city builder, but now I'm also feeling it as a parent. And what you find uh, in a couple of years, if your child isn't going to, to the school right outside their bedroom window in the neighborhood that they're living in day to day, if you're not in that particular school, you end up not having that piece of community with the other students who are in that school from the neighborhood. Like there well, is- that's what my wife and I have talked about all day yesterday since we got the bad news that our son had essentially been said no to, uh, all, all the relationships that have been built on the expectation of participating in the school across yeah. the street, um, uh, hearing from our friends and neighbors, um, you know, some w- w- with relief that they had got in, but not wanting to be too relieved because they felt bad that some of their neighbors had gotten the answer no. The whole psychology of it is, is almost Hunger Games-ish. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's bizarre and disheartening and, and, and just heartbreaking. And I decided I was going to speak out whether we got in or not, because for the last number of weeks, I've just been observing the stress that it puts families under, as all of us have wondered whether, you know, not everybody planned as far ahead as we did uh, 10 years, but everybody makes decisions, every family makes decisions for where they live, uh, at least in part uh, based on where their school is. For us, it was the number one reason we came where we are 10 years ago. And so we didn't just lose a, um, a, 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 an answer relative to where our kids would go to school, their education. We did get the legs knocked out of our whole dream. definition of yeah, community and neighborhood. Yeah. And we're, we're trying to figure out a way to tell our little boy how some of his friends are going to get to the school that he always 
thought he would go to because he talked about it all the time. It's right next to his daycare. For sure. Uh, and he can't. Uh, so, you know, as a city planner, I'm used to having conversations with communities about things like this. I'm having a hard time figuring out how to explain it to my little boy. Oh, that's a tough one, man. We're with Brent Totteran, a city planner urbanist at Totteran Urban Works. We've often talked about the best sort of formula to have a livable, walkable, low carbon footprint sort of city plan, a green city ideal and idea. And this doesn't fit with it. And I, I, I saw your thread on Twitter and I felt your pain and I actually received it from um, the movement over at Olympic Village because they're having mm. a very similar issue there with kids having to drive for, you know, drive. There's no real option to ride a bike there and the buses don't run in the right directions at the right time in order to get the kids to where they need to be. Like it's a 25 minute drive for some people getting their littles to school in the morning right. from Olympic Village. Like this isn't in a just place a- where they should be able to not own a car at all, right. not have to own a car at all. And that's the planning. That's the model. That's yes. the theory and the vision of the whole area. So the broken piece is we need more spaces for kids. And yet when you're watching and listening to the Vancouver school board, schools are closing because low enrollment. It's like schools are closing for low enrollment in predominantly massive single family home areas because people, families can't afford to live in single family home dominated zoning, but where there's high density zoning as to where you are in the Crosstown area or in Olympic Village, there aren't enough spaces for the number of people who need them. So where do we go? Is your, put your city planner hat on. Who do we need to talk to to change this? Well, long before I was a parent, and I, I started my family, uh, had my boys late in my life, I'm almost 50, or I'm over 50 now. Um, long before I was a parent, I knew that the, the, the school building system was the missing piece, the broken piece of the whole equation of complete communities, walkable communities, etc. And the, the, the problem is that it's based on a sort of a mass and money exercise from one uh, arm of government that doesn't think about how it connects to any other arm of government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a cost exercise that's based on not only the kids being there, but them being really, 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 really sure that the kids will be there long term. And there's no flexibility and no uh, creativity to the thought process. So, for example, the schools that are, uh, have lower enrollment in the suburbs, the first thought is to close them to save money, whereas a long-term perspective would be to keep that space, use it for other amenities, other community needs and such, and have it available when the population changes. That's, that's literally the definition of long-term planning, which the school board planning should be doing, but it's not. Uh, instead, the, the, the model is very black and white. It's very uncreative, and that's out in the suburbs. And then in the inner city, uh, ironically, as we try so hard to have downtown be a great place for families, in the suburbs, you can have portables if you have more kids than spaces. In the inner city, the answer is just no, you have to go to some other catchment area. I think we need to be thinking about essentially urban portables, as I'd call them. The private schools rent office space. Yes. They rent buildings. That's where I was going to go and, next, yep. And as city, when I was at City Hall, for example, we constantly needed unusual space, and we were always looking for opportunities to lease temporarily for a few years, extra space for temporary need. I think the school boards need to be looking at that. The funding model need to be, needs to allow them. I don't blame uh, the school boards for this. I think they're hamstrung and they're only allowed to do certain things. This is a, the villain in this piece is the funding model. Yeah. And it's not any particular uh, government party. 
but uh, no one has taken a shot at completely rethinking the funding model, applying creativity and flexibility to it to actually do a better job. I think you identify, Brent, I think you identify one of the big issues here that isn't just on this topic, but on many, is that the silos that have been created Mm -hmm. through the various levels of of government or boards or, you know, what have you, uh, elected officials in that regard, but they all work so independent of one another that they're also busy pointing to the other guy. Because you come and say, how do we figure it? Oh, my budget, I got to protect my budget. I don't have anything in there for that. It's quite something, and and I want... our, our silos because yeah. when if, if they're just looking at saving money on schools, they may not build a school. But then if everybody's driving, and it's remarkable how many of the trips happening in our city every morning and every end of the day are parents trying to get their kids to school. I live next door to an elementary public. school. I can tell you way too many. Way too yeah, many. I'm a out of time. I'm a cost I'm and a, a huge public consequence. Yes. But it's not factored into the Ministry of Education's Uh, cost-benefit analysis when they think about whether or not they pull the trigger on a school. Indeed. I hear your frustration. I'm up against the clock. I got to run here, Brent, but uh, will you do me a favor and keep us posted? I want to hear what happens. If we can move the meter on this, uh, please let me know. Well, we're starting this conversation because it's a pent-up conversation that needs to happen. Whatever happens to my kids, there's a lot of families that need a solution. You're flagging this as a planner, and I will send you this link for your Twitter, and we can move the conversation forward. Appreciate your time today. My pleasure. That's Brent Totteren. He's an urbanist at Totteren Urban Works, and as mentioned, was a, a city planner here in Vancouver. And the good news out of uh, Yokohama, Japan, and the Diamond Princess are the Canadians who were on board, who were looking to return uh, to Canada and be quarantined for 14 days at CFB Trenton, are on their way to home soil. The very bad news is that we received news today that two elderly passengers from the Diamond Princess uh, who were infected with this virus have passed away. They've died. Uh, Japan now has three deaths linked to COVID-19. The two victims, a man and a woman in their 80s, both Japanese, were believed to have been infected before health checks on February 5th. Uh, That's when the quarantine began on the ship. Uh, The health ministry official uh, there in Japan said it's not immediately known if they had any roommates on the ship. So um, certainly more news to come. It seems every day we give an update on this uh, outbreak of COVID-19 and certainly somebody that we have been touching back with since the very beginning is joining me now, Dr. Peter Hotez, who is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. Uh, Dr. Hotez, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I follow along on Twitter, as you know, and I saw you just post this detailed 3D coronavirus um, in hopes of developing the vaccine. Can you give us an update on that? Yeah, so we're um, one of the groups that's developing uh, vaccines for coronaviruses. We've been doing this actually since 2011, uh, starting with SARS. You remember SARS that came out of southern China and affected Toronto, and then MERS that came out of Saudi Arabia. And so we're nicely positioned to do this for uh, this new coronavirus uh taking a couple of different approaches. One, taking the SARS-1 vaccine that we made uh, against the virus that emerged in 2003, seeing if it'll cross-protect against SARS-2, as some are calling it, as well as making some vaccines that specifically target SARS-2. So as you can imagine, it's a pretty hectic time where a nonprofit organization 
based at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital that we like to say we make the vaccines no one else will touch because they're either diseases of the poor or they're for pandemic threats. You might think pandemic threats vaccines are a money maker. They're actually not. Most of the big pharmaceutical companies don't like them because they're oftentimes vaccines that would just be stockpiled for future use. So uh, vaccines are a big investment for pharmaceutical companies. So uh, interestingly, many have stayed away from, are staying away from this one. Well, thank you for the update on that. That sounds like an uphill battle and great works that you are doing there with your team. What have we learned over the last number of days and weeks with regard to COVID-19 and how we have seen this virus sort of evolve or what we've learned along the way? We're hearing that um, while it is perhaps infecting more people, people than SARS did or infecting at a higher rate than SARS, but not as deadly as SARS? Well, it it depends on who you are. So it's been pretty deadly for individuals over the age of 60 or those with underlying diabetes or hypertension. Uh, and it's a big threat to healthcare workers. So those are the two most vulnerable populations, the one we would consider making a vaccine uh, for. And I think one of the new piece, one of the stories that's coming out of this is this virus is probably a lot more contagious than we previously thought. You know, when it was initially found, it was thought to be only transmitted from animals to people, and then became clear that there was some level of human-to-human transmission, but it wasn't considered substantial. Now we're moving towards the fact that it's, uh, it's, it's quite contagious, uh, more contagious, for instance, than a typical seasonal influenza might be. And, and this is not too unusual. When you have a new pathogen that no one has seen before, uh, it takes time to get, uh, get your arms around and get an understanding uh, actually, one of the things that I also put on social media, because I, I like to do Twitter, is um, you know the Chinese are being heavily criticized for lack of transparency in this epidemic. But one area where you have to give them a lot of credit is among their scientists, their virologists. They've been putting everything up there on the Internet through this interesting preprint server called BioArchive, which is spelled B-I-O-R-X-I-V. It's put up by Cold Spring Harbor Laboratories. And that stuff's been life-saving. It's really, we've really been able to use it to design our vaccine. So I give the Chinese scientists and virologists actually uh, a lot of credit for their transparency and putting stuff up there so quickly. That's very interesting. And identifying what the, the virus looked like, the mapping of the virus initially, you were t- teaching us about that prior to having access to the virus itself to test on. These are all, you know, can be mapped back to those same scientists, right? Yeah, I mean, the way this virus works is um, if you ever look at a picture under the electron microscope, the reason they call it corona, referring to crown, it has these little spikes around it. And those spikes are what binds to the receptor in the lungs and other tissues. And so the vaccine strategy is to make a vaccine that blocks the attachment of those virus spikes to the host receptor which is pretty straightforward, actually. So I don't think that's the complicating piece. The part that's going to be tough with coronaviruses, all coronaviruses, is that we've seen in laboratory animals that sometimes they get this paradoxical worsening with the vaccine, uh, depending on what kind of vaccine you use, especially killed virus vaccines. Uh, And we've seen this with other respiratory viruses. So one of the things we've been designing our vaccines on is to avoid this problem 
of uh, this immune enhancement, and we have some optimism that we think we can do that. Oh, I have my fingers crossed. It's so interesting to speak with you. Dr. Peter J. Hotez is on the line with us. He is the Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and co-director of the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development. You've heard me speak with uh, Dr. Hotez before uh, about vaccines of all sorts, but specific to the coronavirus, what is your opinion of how the Diamond Princess was handled with regard to quarantine? Yeah, that, that did not go well. Uh, and, and, you know, the initial idea was not a terrible one. You know, the, they're, they're in a nice boat. They're good living conditions. It's a lot of people, you know, these cruise ships, sometimes they're massive uh, cities, you know, of, of 3,000 or more people. Uh, but I think the problem was the Japanese authorities, whoever was making that decision, when they saw people actually getting infected during the quarantine process uh, and people were getting sick because of the quarantine, they couldn't figure out how to call an audible and get everybody off the ship. And, and that's the tragic mistake that, that, that they made, in my opinion. At that point, uh, when you saw that people were getting infected during the quarantine process, it was time to get everybody off the ship and do maybe something like we've done in the United States where we're using military bases uh, to put people, you know, it's not uh, ideal situation, but it's, you know, it's safe and dry and you can provide food and comfort, uh, something along those lines. And uh, instead, the Japanese authorities kept digging their heels in and saying, this is what we're going to do. And and unfortunately, now we've learned two individuals have, have died uh, from coronavirus, which are individuals who are over the age of 80. And it's not surprising because we already know that this virus is lethal in older individuals. We're doing the same thing here in Canada with regard to when uh, bringing uh, the travelers home from Japan. They, they will go to CFB Trenton in Ontario uh, to the military base there and, and be a 14 14- Day quarantine. So on and, that, and it, ship, and it, get, and it oh, gets to the fact that this virus is more transmissible than we, you know, we're right. the picture that's more, more transmissible than we realize. Exactly why is speculative. Uh, we know that many respiratory viruses are transmitted through what's called droplet contact, meaning you cough or sneeze on somebody, and the droplets either go on the surface, and you can you get your fingers contaminated with that, and you touch your eyes or your mouth, and it gets into the mucous membranes of your eyes and mouth, or somebody coughs or sneezes directly on you, and the droplets go on you. The, one of the, there's two other questions, though. One is whether this virus can actually travel in the air for long distances or stay, stay alive is it, through airborne transmission. Like measles. A lot of people, uh, yeah, a lot of people have the misunderstanding. They think all respiratory viruses are transmitted that way. It turns out to be pretty uncommon. Measles does it, as you point out. Yeah. And chickenpox virus does it, not many others. So maybe that's happening. And there are also some reports of uh, fecal-oral contact as a possibility, and that's under investigation as well. So whatever the mechanism, uh, we're we're seeing more people infected than than we might have ordinarily imagined. End of the day, what, what we can all do here in North America is wash our hands. Wash your hands, uh, avoid crowded places. I mean, right now, there's not a significant level of human-to-human transmission going on in North America, at least that we know about. Right. Uh, uh, but last week, the CDC director, Bob Redfield, in the U.S., said that he thinks it's likely this virus will gain a foothold in the United States. 
we will start seeing human-to-human transmission. So I think we have to get ready. And if the problem that I'm concerned about, which I also wrote about uh, earlier this week, is if that happens, it's happening at a bad time because flu season is still pretty bad in North America. Uh, usually it starts to die down around this time, but it's it's uh, still quite high and in, in some places still peaking. So it's looking like this is going to be a long flu season. Sometimes flu season goes until May, and I think this could be one of them. So now you've got the problem of uh, concurrent flu and coronavirus. And then to make matters worse, as, as we've talked about before, there's a pretty aggressive anti-vaccine lobby in in U.S. and maybe Canada, mm-hmm. and that brought measles back last year. Uh, and there's concern that could come back again in 2020. Well, guess what the peak season of measles is? It's late winter, early spring. spring. So where are we headed? Late winter, early spring. So I'm actually worried about the potential of a triple epidemic of influenza, measles, and this coronavirus. And what I've been saying is at least, you know, do your part. Make sure you and your family are getting your flu vaccines. Make sure your kids are up to date with their measles vaccines. So at least we could take that off the table and just focus on this coronavirus. From your lips, Dr. Peter Hotez, thank you very much for this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I look forward to speaking with you again and getting an update. Boy, I learn a lot every time. And you need to follow Dr. Peter J. Hotez on Twitter. Hey, earlier in the show, we actually spoke, had a great chat with BCTF President Terry Mooring about the ongoing negotiations between the Teachers Federation and the government. And joining us on the line now is Stephanie Higson, the president of the BC Schools Trustee Association. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. Thanks for having me, Jody. I want you to listen to just a piece of what Terry said a little bit earlier with regard to 2-2 and 2 mandate. Teachers are the second lowest paid um, teacher, like we're the second lowest paid uh, nationally. And so uh, teachers in BC make less only, uh, we're only second to Quebec. So Quebec makes less than teachers in BC, um, than it's teachers in BC. So it's, it's really significant having a real big impact on teachers coming from their jurisdictions to BC. And so two, two and two, we understand that to be the mandate. Um, we get it. Um, but there are other things that other unions were able to do to increase their salaries, and that's what we're looking for as well. So that piqued my curiosity, and I thought, ooh, I need to tag that for Stephanie later in our conversation. Can you give us an, an idea of what Terry's referencing there? Well, you no, know, I can't, because I don't sit at the bargaining table with those particular unions. But what I can say is that there is certainly an ability to help teachers adjust their pay beyond the two, two, and two, but it has to happen within the entire budget that we have to work with. So we're being provided with 2, 2, and 2 as a pay increase. Yes. And if we want to do things like make um, grid adjustments or things like that, we can do that, but we have to do it within the current within the budget that we're provided. Those things are possible, and we're happy to help do that, and we really want to help the teachers meet their objectives as well at the table. So that would be the bargaining piece, that the, the, the mm-hmm. teachers, the BCTF needs to give up something that costs money in order to move money into that uh, grid that they're talking about. Exactly, exactly. Can you um, give me any insight, uh, Stephanie, on the the pieces that uh, seem to be the stumbling blocks or sort of the verbiage within? Terry was referencing that there were things that were sort of stalling the conversation uh, prior to, and good news that everybody's coming back to the table later on this month and a couple of weeks in March as well. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of good here. Um, 
have some of the roadblocks been removed? Sorry for the pun, given recent news stories. <laughs> you know what? Uh, I, I appreciate the pun. So I think that when you ask, you know, what are the roadblocks? Things that we're looking for are being characterized as concessions, but we look at them as changes. We're not proposing anything that would result in the elimination of any jobs. We're talking about uh, re- changing the way the language currently lays out so that we can have a focus on, um, on, on being able to talk about what counts as modern and robust student supports, because some of this language dates, all most of it, in fact, dates back to the late 80s and early 90s. And all of us know that the students in front of us have changed significantly since then, as well as the way we teach them. And we would really like to update and modernize that language. And that's what we're trying to do at the table. And wouldn't teachers want that updated, given the fact that the classroom has changed exponentially? As someone who graduated in 1985, I can look at my son's classroom. He's in grade seven. It's exponentially different. There might be three or four kids in his class where English is a second language. He's got kids with um, anxiety issues or ADHD or any other category that might be sort of new to Mm -hmm. uh, an inclusive classroom, which I think everybody agrees is necessary. Absolutely. I think that's what the employer is trying to do. We're trying to make sure that the language we have in the contract that, you know, really uh, helps make sure that our teachers have good working conditions re- also meets the needs of the students that we're trying to serve. And that's what we're trying to do right now at the table. And I can understand from the perspective of the teachers why after the 15-year fight um, all the way through to the Supreme Court of Canada that they would be very nervous about changing that language. But the employer feels that it's very important for us to move that language to a place where it reflects the needs of the students we serve. So if if it could be said in a different way with it, because bargaining class size and composition, I mean, we as parents, as citizens, we have, we've heard this over and over and over again. And at one point at, with a previous government, removing the, the limits on class size and composition saw exponential increases in... If so, teachers would have these massive classrooms that were so diverse. And my kind, my kid's kindergarten teacher had six kids who spoke all different languages. No two had mm-hmm. the same first language, and none of them spoke English. She spent the entire time managing those six kids. She's like, I don't even have time to check if your son is learning anything. I'm just he's safe though. He's safe. Mm-hmm. You know that's not yeah. enough. You know, so how would we phrase it differently other than using terms class size and composition? Is that the question that you're yeah. looking for? Is there another so, way to do it that, that doesn't sort of lead to uh, stress for teachers in the bargaining room? I think that what we are proposing is, you know, looking at keeping ratios in place, but really not having them be so rigid and set so that, you know, in, in my district, I have different needs than the district down the road, than the district in the lower mainland. And I would like us to be able to be given the amount of teachers that we're given right now under the current class size and composition language. Give me those teachers, but let us sit down locally in our district with our, with our local teachers association and with all the important players to say, okay, where do we need to deploy these teachers best? Do Mm -hmm. we need more elementary counselors? We know that that has a big impact on kids living in poverty as elementary counselors. So let's have some more of those over here because we've got some pockets of poverty. We need some social justice educators over here because we know this area of the, of the city is dealing with some issues around racism and that's really important for those kids walking through the doors. So we are proposing to have more flexibility but keep those numbers the same. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, Stephanie. Because when I'm giving you my story, I live in Vancouver. My Vancouver mm. experience is very different than 100 Mile House. Yes, absolutely. And I live in Nanaimo, which is very different than 
you know, West Vancouver or Victoria or even Vancouver. So we all need to be able to, what we want is to be able to have nuanced discussions about what are the the student learning needs in our communities and how do we best meet their needs with the teachers we have. It is a very different classroom than it was years ago. And what I'm hearing from you as the president of the BC School Trustees Association is that you understand that and are are definitely forward-thinking on how to, because really this isn't about teachers or government or associations, it's about children. It's about the students. You know, I'm also a parent yeah. with two young kids in the system, yeah. and I'm in those classrooms um, regularly watching uh, the amazing work that my, my children's teachers do with the students they have. And also, as a former teacher, I was a, a secondary school teacher for a number of years in Ontario, not ever in BC, but I, I recognize the dynamic nature of teaching and really want to make sure, as an employer, that we optimize student learning conditions, but also protect the teacher workload provisions that are so important to them. I'm feeling optimistic, Stephanie. Is that is should I be? I'm always optimistic about this. I, I really, really am hopeful that um, that we can get a fully negotiated agreement through this this next round of mediation. Uh, I'm I'm encouraged by um, the language and the tone that I'm hearing from uh, Terry lately. And and you know we we all really want to get this done. It's it's in everyone's best interest. It's in the students' best interest, but also it's really in the teachers' best interest. This must be very stressful for a full time working teacher to wonder what's happening next. And we're committed to making sure that they have you know, good workload provisions that meet the needs of the students they're serving. I very much appreciate you uh, being a part of this conversation today on short notice. Thank you for this, Stephanie. No worries. Thanks for having me. That's Stephanie Higginson, the president of the BC Schools Trustee Association. If you just tuned in, I will make sure I tweet out our conversation as I have Terry Mooring in my conversation, J-O-D-Y Vance, Jody Vance on Twitter, and I will put that out there for you.